From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, University of Virginia law professor Michael Schwartzman joins me to discuss the legacy of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy and the future of the Supreme Court. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the Public Morality. Justice Anthony Kennedy recently announced that he would retire this summer from the Supreme Court, setting in motion a furious fight over the future of the court and giving President Donald Trump the chance to put a conservative stamp on the American legal system for future generations. Justice Kennedy was a swing voter on the court on matters ranging from gay rights to abortion law. But with his exit, Will the court take a definitive turn to the right with the president's nominee to replace Justice Kennedy, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, that many conservatives have longed for? To discuss the legacy of Justice Kennedy and the future outlook of the court, I will speak with University of Virginia law professor Micah Schwartzman. Professor Schwartzman is the Joseph W. Dorn Research Professor of Law at the University of Virginia School of Law. Professor Micah Schwartzman. Welcome to the Public Morality. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's begin by discussing how you see the legacy of uh, Justice Kennedy. Well, Justice Kennedy um, was the um, decisive vote in a number of important areas of law, um, and I think um, you know many people will say that over the last decade or so, he presided over the Kennedy Court. Usually, the courts are are titled after the, the chief justices, so we would usually say it's the Roberts Court, but many people refer to it as the Kennedy Court because he, his vote um, as the median voter on the court, as the kind of swing vote, he didn't like that description, but as the swing vote, um, his vote was decisive in so many cases. I mean, th- there are a number of areas where his legacy um, w- you know, will, will be marked, and of course the most prominent of those is in a series of gay rights decisions going back to the 90s and culminating with the decision in Obergefell versus Hodges which is annou- which announces a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. I think that will be um his his signature uh in terms of the development of of um of constitutional rights. Um on the other side um Justice Kennedy I think will also be known for his decision in Citizens United. Um, which struck down campaign finance regulations um, and broadened um, the ability of corporations um, to exercise constitutional rights and especially to do it in the political process. I think those are two important decisions. Um, a decision that's not um, as, hasn't been discussed as much in the last couple of weeks, but that I think will, will also be um, important in his legacy is, of course, Bush v. Gore, uh, where uh, you know his decision along with those of other conservative judges, helped to pick a president of the United States um, and, uh, and ensure a conservative legacy on the court. And those are some of the most important decisions. There are many others, and we're happy to talk about them, but I think those will be some of the main ones that he's remembered for. So would it be fair to say that wherever one finds themselves on the political spectrum, they could find a decision 
where Justice Kennedy took a lead position that they loved, and they could also find one that they loathed. Would that be fair? I think that's right. He's going to have people who um, who will praise him for some of his decisions and loathe him, as you said, on the other side. Um, he was uh, he was not um, he was not as polarizing ideologically as uh, as I think many candidates would be today because. He wasn't nominated at a time when there was as strong ideological polarization. Um, and and his votes in some areas, especially in gay rights, I think were unpredictable at the outset. Um, but he evolved a fairly um, strong commitment not only to gay rights but to individual liberty more generally. And um, that you know that became again part of part of his judicial philosophy. Um, but it meant that there will be you know there were decisions that uh, didn't didn't fit with e- either party platform nicely, uh, and so he'll have detractors on both sides. Uh, as an observer of the court, what what was some of the strengths that that that. Uh stood out for Justice Kennedy. I mean, I mean, certainly we think of uh, former Justice Antonin Scalia and just some of his uh, pithy remarks in dissent. So what was it about uh, Justice Kennedy that, 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 makes, that stands out for you? Um, I think that Justice Kennedy um, will, will be remembered for, uh, in terms of the, the quality of the judicial philosophy. Yes. Um, he had a strong commitment to, um, to separation of powers, uh, checks and balances, sort of the key uh, constitutional principles, and he liked to talk about those, not only in the opinions, but to public audiences as well, to remind people of some of the main features of our um, Constitution. Um, I think in terms of the opinion writing, look, some of the detractors will say that Kennedy liked to reach for high rhetoric, um, to write opinions that he thought would be, would be read um, you know, down the line historically, and that frustrated many conservatives. Kennedy was willing to depart from the text uh, and what many people considered to be the original public meaning of the Constitution. Kennedy thought that, at least in some areas of constitutional law, its meaning was evolving. Um, it changed over time, and so should our understanding of it. So, for example, not only in gay rights, but in the context of death penalty jurisprudence, where Justice Kennedy was willing to cut back um, on state powers um, to punish people um, by death. Um, in those areas, he thought um, our social standards had changed over time, and he was willing to say that in the opinions, again, to the frustration of conservatives and to the praise of, of many liberals. Um, you know, I, I think um, Justice Kennedy was not, was not going to be put into a box, either doctrinally or methodologically. So um, he was not doctrinaire in that regard. And again, um, for people who wanted a, you know, an originalist on the bench, and that's the only thing they cared about, he, he wasn't going to fit. But also for liberals who were prepared to go along with a kind of evolving understanding of the Constitution, Justice Kennedy frustrated them on lots of issues. Um, you know, including affirmative action and abortion, but he wasn't prepared to go all the way on those issues. And I think he developed some reputation for being a kind of hamlet, for not fully deciding or committing on a principle. And that was both a virtue and a weakness. The virtue was that he never closed the door on issues like abortion or affirmative action or political gerrymandering. The weakness was that he didn't give a clear rule in those cases either, um, that would have given guidance uh, to lower courts, or for that matter, to, to the country more generally about where the limits were for any for any of those issues. 
You, you touched on two concepts in your last answer, and I, I'd like to have you just give us a Reader Digest version of each for some of our listeners. Sure. You talked about originalism, and you talked about, um, you didn't use these words, but I'll just say a, a living constitution. And can you tell me how those two schools differ, and can you just give us a strength and weakness of both viewpoints? Sure. The the current understanding of originalism, which was popularized by the late Justice Scalia, is that the way we should understand um, constitutional terms, for example, um, freedom of speech or the equal protection of the laws or um, protection of the due process of laws, these majestic phrases um, in the Constitution, we should understand them according to how someone, um, a, an ordinary reader, would have understood them at the time at which they were enacted. Some um, sometimes this is referred to as the original public meaning of um, the text of the Constitution. And originalists think we should tie our understanding of the Constitution to the meaning of um, of those phrases as someone who uh, would have read them when they were enacted would have understood them. That's the basic idea. So the the Constitution has to be read in light of its historical understanding. Living constitutionalists tend to think that we should understand terms in the Constitution um, as embodying principles which, you know, we can look to the history to understand those principles, but those principles um, uh, can yield new applications over time and that they generate new meanings. Um, so if you take a phrase like equal protection of the laws, maybe initially it meant that we should protect racial minorities, but over time it's been extended also to include other minorities, say women, gays and lesbians, um, and, and others. We should understand these phrases in the Constitution um, to have meaning which uh, which can, to some extent, uh, evolve or keep up with our social understandings, our traditions as they grow and change. And that you use the phrase "living constitution." The idea is that the constitution, um, the, the constitution, is a tradition that continues to to change and to evolve over time. And those two schools are competing ideas. I mean, there are people who try to bridge them, but for the most part, these are competitor understandings of how to interpret the constitution. Thank you. Uh, you also mentioned uh, Justice Kennedy in light of uh, nominees in the 21st century was was, a, was of a different breed. Uh, interestingly enough, though, he comes on the heels uh, of uh, Justice Bork's unsuccessful nomination, uh, along with then after that it was uh, I believe Douglas Ginsburg, um, who God forbid had um, admitted to smoking marijuana as a faculty right. as a faculty member. <laughs> And uh, so you end up with a nominee uh, who brings a lot of his perspective from actually being a practitioner of the law as opposed to just being a legal scholar. Is Justice Kennedy, in that regard, the last uh, of a breed? Well, I, you know, Kennedy was very young when he was nominated to the bench. We shouldn't forget that. And this is a trend that has continued um, right up through uh, the most recent nominees, uh, Justice Roberts, or Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justice Alito, for that matter, also Justice Thomas. These these judges were fairly young in their late 30s, early 40s when they were put on the bench. So they had careers, but fairly brief ones. Justice Kennedy in practice, and also teaching before he was put onto the Ninth Circuit again at a fairly young age. Um, and some people refer to him as the Sphinx from Sacramento. That they didn't really have a clear sense of his judicial track record when he was elevated 
um, to the Supreme Court. And as you said, it came on the heels of two defeated nominations, um, Judge Bork, very much in the originalist mode um, that uh, conservatives have wanted to see in their more recent nominees. Justice Kennedy um, was a more moderate pick by President Reagan, and it and that turned out to be the case in terms of his record on the bench as well. He was not willing to take the, polar, the, the most polarizing positions on many issues that conservatives had wanted, and most especially, of course, on abortion. Um, so, but, you know, you asked, as compared to more recent nominees, I don't know that he's the last. I mean, it, I think that just depends on the configuration of the Senate and the presidency. And if you have a president with um, you know, whose party's in the minority in the Senate, they're going to have to put forward more moderate nominees in order to get them passed, even without the filibuster, which no longer exists for Supreme Court nominations. Um, but, you know, when the president has a majority in the Senate, as the current president does, by a very slim majority, um, he'll be able to nominate people who are more in line with that president's philosophy about, you know, what a judge should represent on the court. Uh now, most experts uh, assume, believe, uh, that at least that I've heard, maybe you've heard some uh, diff- different uh, takes, but the court is headed in, a, in um, shall we say, a, a, a hard right uh, position. Do you accept that premise, and, 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 and what would that mean from your perspective? Um, I do think the court is prepared at this point to shift right, but I think we have to be cautious about um, how to describe that shift. Some people think, um, you know, every time you have a new nominee, you think this person will reconfigure the court, and to some extent that's true, but it doesn't mean that the new nominee will be the leader of of a you know new faction on the court. Justice Kavanaugh, if he's Judge Kavanaugh, if he's confirmed to be Justice Kavanaugh, um, will most likely be um, to the right of Chief Justice Roberts on many issues, um, probably not as far right as some of the conservatives on the court, like Justice Thomas. But that will mean that instead of replacing his um, former boss, he clerk, Judge Kavanaugh clerked for um, Justice Kennedy, instead of replacing Kennedy as the swing, as the median justice on the court, the man in the middle, so to speak, that role will most likely be occupied in many cases by Chief Justice Roberts himself. And that will make this more profoundly um, the Roberts court. Um, so titled after the the chief, and not just because he's the chief, but also because he will be the decisive vote, the arbiter in many 5-4 decisions with uh, four liberals um, to his left and four conservatives to his right. Chief Justice Roberts will be, I think, in the driver's seat in a lot of cases where Justice Kennedy might otherwise have been. There might be some issues where other justices, like um, Judge Kavanaugh would take that role, but I think it's really going to be Roberts. Roberts is more conservative than Justice Kennedy, so we'll see a shift on some issues to the right. Um, but Chief Justice Roberts also has deep institutional concern for the court, so I don't see any um, lurches, not immediately. It will take some time. Chief Justice Roberts is prepared to work incrementally, and he has um, a long time horizon. So, um, So I think we'll see moves, but uh, not leaps. Um, it will take some time for this to develop. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with University of Virginia School of Law Professor Michael Schwartzman. Uh, professor Schwartzman, what is the Federal Society and what was its role in choosing uh, 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 Judge Kavanaugh? The Federal Society is an organization of conservative legal scholars, practitioners, 
uh, and students. Um, it was founded um, in order to um, promote conservative legal views in the um, in law in law schools and in the judiciary. Um, it took shape mainly um, inside law schools, but it has a strong um, base in uh, in practicing lawyers, um, and it has um, a tremendous amount of power in the judicial selection process, partly because it helps to identify talented conservative legal minds um, and helps to channel them into um, into judgeships. It has been incredibly successful in doing that. Um, I think um, its uh, its members are highly motivated. They are very intelligent. They've got tremendous work ethic, and they have built a powerful organization over the last generation or so. And they have been very effective in um, assisting Republican administrations in helping to identify and um, and marshal um, new judges um, into the into the federal judiciary. And they've played a role. Uh, for President Trump. Some people have said that President Trump has outsourced his judicial nominations to the Federal Society. I don't think it's um, – I don't think that's quite the right description, but they've certainly played an important role. Uh, and, um, and you see it in the, in the quality of the nominees, many of whom have impeccable um, conservative credentials um, and anyway impeccable credentials to serve on the bench, um, and in the numbers of, of nominees that have been advanced over two years. Um, President Trump has – um, it's it's probably his strongest suit at this point in terms of the early term of his administration moving federal judges. He's done a very good job from a conservative perspective in doing that. Back in 1953, uh, President Dwight Eisenhower nominated Chief Justice Earl Warren. Eisenhower later lamented that that was the biggest damn fool mistake he ever made. <laughs> uh, you, you might say that uh, President Kennedy had he lived, may have felt the same way in, in, in his nomination of Byron White. Uh, then you have David Souter. Um, have we now gotten to a point to where those types of, um, where justice departs from a president's perspective, or have we gone beyond that? Do we just have a, too much information on a justice to be fooled in that way? I don't think we'll see another um, justice nominated like David Souter. Um, I, I think, yeah, I think the presidents have um, sufficient pressure on them to pick people who have track records, that that seems incredibly unlikely. But conservatives have been unhappy with some of Chief Justice Roberts' nominations, uh, I mean, uh, decisions. His his nomination was, I think, for conservatives, uncontroversial at the time. But because he voted to uphold the Affordable Care Act, you know, Obamacare, um, many conservatives are displeased with him. They think he's more committed to the court as an institution than to conservative judicial principles. So maybe that was something of a surprise. But we should remember that Chief Justice Roberts was um, was a consensus pick on the right. It was an easy decision for um, President Bush, and in fact, one supported by Brett Kavanaugh when he was um, in the White House. That could happen again, right? I don't think that it's obvious that Judge Kavanaugh will please conservatives all the time for all the decisions, even on important questions. But there won't be deep surprises in the way that Justice Souter seems to have, seems to have surprised uh, conservatives on many issues and shifted left over time. I think we are past that. Again, though, provided that the president has a cooperative Senate, a Senate that agrees, you know, a majority of which agrees with his philosophy. 
For those of us who who are not attorneys, uh, from your perspective, you you just talked about conservatives being disappointed in Justice Roberts' uh, decision on um, the Affordable Care Act. Are we guilty of assessing assessing a justice by the outcome of a decision without having the requisite understanding of the process that went into that decision? I think there's no doubt that um, political officials, and for that matter, most members of the public judge um, Supreme Court justices, and for that matter, the decisions of the Supreme Court based on their outputs. Whether or not they should do that is a separate question. But the fact is that we, we evaluate the justices by the outcomes of the decisions that, um, that they make, um, fair or not. I think that's just a reality about how Americans perceive the court. Um, many Americans perceive it, I think, increasingly as a political institution, partly because the nominations are so polarized at this point. Um, You know, it's not an entirely fair way to judge Supreme Court justices to the extent that they're trying to follow um, principles of law. It may lead them to conclusions that they might not have expected and that might not be consistent with their political views. But, you know, in these very big cases, um, it's especially the Affordable Care Act case, it's hard not to see some political strategizing on the part of the chief, maybe not along partisan lines, but along the lines of trying to save um, the legitimacy of the court. Chief Justice Roberts, I think, understands that when the court is pitted against the signature policies of a president, whether it's the Affordable Care Act for President Obama or the travel ban for President Trump, the court um, is engaged in a conflict that it will have over time a very a very difficult time winning. And I think he wants, to the extent possible, to avoid those kinds of conflicts. In terms of case law, why is Roe v. Wade such a lightning rod? Um, Roe v. Wade, of course, is the decision that constitutionalized abortion um, in the early 1970s. Uh, and, And it's a lightning rod because abortion, as a social political and moral issue is deeply divisive and has remained that way for more than a generation now. And so um, that social conflict is reflected back onto the court's decisions. Conservatives have moved to put justices on the bench who would overturn Roe v. Wade, and they have been disappointed by a number of the justices who they thought would accomplish that. That includes, of course, Justice Kennedy, but also Justice O'Connor, Justice Souter. They do they did manage to get votes in that direction from Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas. We think they would have them for, from Justice uh, Gorsuch and Alito. And we'll see how far Justice, if he's confirmed, Justice Kavanaugh uh, will, would go along with Chief Justice Roberts. I mean, this, is the, this is the case that has motivated political parties in the judicial nominations process, in elections. Um, it's a it's a thorn that has really spurred, I think, um, social and religious conservatives to care about getting federal judges on the bench. And so the outcomes here are, um, are very important to, to that movement, and the stakes are high. It's sort of ironic that we just talked, in my previous question, we talked about the outcome, and, and, and that's a situation where only the outcome matters. I think that's right. I mean, you know, President Trump said, I'm going to pick justices who will overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, You know, many presidents have said they don't have a litmus test. They just want to pick justices who have a judicial philosophy that's consistent with their own. But the subtext has long been that 
um, that Republican presidents will pick justices who are skeptical of Roe v. Wade, partly because Roe v. Wade is thought to be illegitimate on legal grounds um, by conservatives, that it's um, that it, it doesn't uh, fit, it's not consistent with the original meaning of the Constitution. So there is a judicial philosophy, they would say, that would, that would lead to this outcome. But I think even more so for many uh, who care about this question as a social and political matter, the outcome is really front and center, more even than the methodology in some cases. And if if Roe were to be overturned, um, would that mean that we would have, it would just go back to the states, we'd have 50 competing policies? Um, I Well, that would be one result, that the states would be free to engage in regulation of abortion. Whether there would be federal regulation is a further question, and of course that would depend on who who's the president and who controls Congress. Um, but both at the federal and state level, there could be uh, regulation or even prohibition of abortion. I should say I don't think we're likely to see Roe reversed outright immediately. Um, that That's unlikely given the composition of the court now. If another liberal justice were to come down, Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer, for example, maybe there would be a push for that outcome. What we're more likely to see is um, cutbacks on um, protection for abortions uh, and you know, sort of a death by a thousand cuts approach. That is, that states will pass increasingly uh, restrictive regulations on abortion, and the court will affirm those regulations under existing precedent without reaching the question immediately of whether abortion is um, permissible under Roe. They won't overturn Roe right away. We'll see incremental steps well before we get to that larger question. That may frustrate some conservatives. They, the pace of change may not be fast enough. Um, given how long they've been working on this, but I think that's the more likely result. Mm-hmm. Professor Schwartzman, um, for those who may be listening who are political junkies and who will be glued to the hearings of uh, Judge Kavanaugh, uh, are, are, are we still, uh, in terms of uh, Senate hearings, are we still living under the shadow of the Bork hearings? Oh, there's no question. Uh, the the uh, nominees know that they should be extremely cautious in answering their questions. They're not going to venture out um, to say anything about controversial cases that they can avoid, and they can avoid almost everything at this point. Justice Gorsuch, when he was um, in his hearings, put on a clinic of how to do that, and so had other nominees before him. Um, some people refer to the Ginsburg rule um, that, you know, you're not going to talk about uh, cases that might come up before the court, and and um, this, um, the relative silence of the nominees about pretty much anything interesting in their um, in their judicial philosophies is going to continue, and that all is a function of the result in Bork's hearing. If he hadn't said as much, he wouldn't have gotten into as much trouble. And so the answer is, say as little as you can. Um, you know, give some generalities about your judicial philosophy, and move on especially if you have the numbers and there's no filibuster. So there's very little pressure on Judge Kavanaugh uh, to reach beyond the ordinary script here. I don't think we'll learn all that much from the nomination hearings. And, 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 and to that extent, uh, does the unsuccessful nomination of uh, Judge Merrick Garland, you, does that, will that play any role, or, or just because Dem- uh, Republicans have the numbers, that, that, they will, that won't amount to much? That's right. It's all about the numbers. There really is nothing else happening here, as far as I can see. Um, you know, barring scandal, which I don't think anyone foresees at this point with respect to Judge Kavanaugh, who's highly respected and extremely accomplished, um, this is just a straightforward um, vote count. And the Democrats will be 
and are furious about the treatment of um, Judge Garland. I think just from my from my perspective, I think they're right to be angry about that, but it's neither here nor there. Um, there's nothing they they can do about that um, when, it, when it comes down to it. This is just about uh, who has a majority in the Senate with no filibuster uh, involved. And if you've got plus one, that's the that's the end of it. Uh, spend a few minutes, if you could, uh, based on what you know, to, to give us a Reader's Digest version of um, Judge Kavanaugh, the, uh, who President <laughs> Trump has just nominated for the Supreme Court. So Judge Kavanaugh is, as I said, extremely accomplished. He's been a judge on the um, D.C. Circuit, that is the U.S. Court of Appeals for uh, Washington, D.C., for more than a decade. It's the second most influential court in the country, in large part because it hears cases involving administrative agencies like the EPA or the FCC or other um, regulatory agencies. Um, And uh, he's had a distinguished career um, there. He clerked for Justice um, Kennedy, um, who whose seat he's been um, nominated to fill. He then uh, worked as associate counsel for Ken Starr in the investigation of President Clinton and his impeachment. Um, he was uh, associate counsel and, um, and a secretary for um, President Bush in the White House. So he has deep experience in the executive branch before becoming a federal judge. As a federal judge on the D.C. Circuit, he's known for opinions in which the court has tried to cut back on the authority of administrative agencies, again, like the EPA, to police um, Congress's delegation of power to those agencies and to make sure that those um, agencies um, have um, limits on their discretion and ability to enact regulations. From a liberal perspective, that means that um, Judge Kavanaugh has a profile of a judge who um, who's skeptical about economic regulation, who's interested in cutting back on the administrative state that is the power of administrative agencies to enact regulations. Um, and, and I think that's, the, the, that's probably the, the standing um, criticism uh, from the left of him, but it's also what cheers the right. Um, on some other issues, he's very strong on executive power, thinks that the, um, that the um, president has um, unified authority over agencies, and, um, and has suggested, and there'll be some, some controversy over this, that presidents should not have to answer for lawsuits um, during their administrations. And this will be contentious, and I'm sure he'll be asked lots of questions about it during his confirmation hearings. That's um, that's just the beginning of a preview, but we're gonna. You know, there'll be a deep dive, of course, in the hearings into various areas of Justice or Judge Kavanaugh's um, jurisprudence. You know, what I found interesting, and this is pure speculation on my part, uh, but in 2006, in his confirmation hearing, um, uh, Judge Kavanaugh thought, and it's ironic, you had mentioned that he worked on, uh, he worked with Ken Starr in the Clinton investigation. Um, he thought that in 2006, he said he thought Starr's jurisdiction was too wide. And I'm wondering, given the Robert Mueller investigation, uh, is, was that part of President Trump's thinking when uh, putting forth uh, Kavanaugh's nomination? I have to say I doubt it. Um, I know that – I mean, I would assume that the White House counsel and Trump's advisors took a look at this, um, at his role in the uh, Clinton investigation and at his comments about it. Um, but I, I'd be surprised if that was the decisive issue or even um, among the top issues for them in this election – 
um, Judge Kavanaugh has a deep record on administrative law issues and executive power, and I think that those probably played a stronger role um, for uh, presidents, for the president's advisors. But of course, there will be, there will be questions about his role in the um, in the Starr investigation of Clinton, um, in what he said about the investigator's authority and its breadth. There will be comparisons about Mueller. I would assume that Judge Kavanaugh will refuse to comment on the Mueller investigation and say again anything particularly interesting. Um, about it, who will avoid those kinds of questions. But there will be legitimate questions to ask about whether there is a double standard here. So, so what I'm taking from this from this discussion, um, A, if, if you have the votes, B, you need to have a track record, but not too much of a track record, and C, you really sh- you should say m- much ado about nothing when in front of the Senate. How did I do? <laughs> you did just fine. You did just fine. I think I, think I will say... Kavanaugh has a track record. It's not even a it's not even a thin one. It's pretty robust. Like there are ten years of opinions, three hundred opinions. He worked very hard as a district court judge. I mean, as a sorry, as a D.C. Circuit judge. There, there's a lot to read, and so there. I don't think there'll be any doubt about what his judicial philosophy looks like in the in a kind of general sense. There'll be some questions about particular issues, maybe, but people know where he stands on a lot of issues. There's a lot of material to churn through and to. Um, to ask him about. But the rest of it, I agree with you. I mean, if you have the votes, you just don't have to say much. And that's what these confirmation hearings have turned into. It's um, it's not totally pro forma, but it's getting close to that at this point. What, uh, lastly, what would, you, if, if, if we didn't have the current process we have, and as we've already talked about, because of, largely because of, of the Bork hearings, what would you like to see happen um, in lieu of the current process in terms of nominating a justice? You know, this this is um, a hard question to answer um, without changing the nomination process more profoundly. Some people have suggested that Supreme Court justices ought to have term limits of 18 years. I think there's a decent argument for that. That there, in other words, there should be some routine turnover, and then you could have a more, um, you know, a more thorough process where justices or nominees would feel. Um, like they have more of an opportunity to, to discuss their philosophies. But there has to be some depolarization in the nomination process for that to happen, and it's really hard to see it. I mean, I guess what I would say is I think, um, I think given the way the numbers look right now, um, Democrats, again, barring the unforeseen, ought to assume that they're talking to someone who's very likely to become a Supreme Court justice, and they ought to treat that person with the dignity that they would treat a Supreme Court justice. I mean, otherwise, you end up with nominees who go through a process um, which, which uh, you know, which they resent later on. And I think, um, and it just does. I don't think that does anyone any good in the long term. Um, it makes for angry judges and justices. It poisons the nomination process. And it would be helpful for both sides to pull back from the polarization. But again, it takes a first mover, and it's really hard to see where that will come from. I doubt from the party and the minority. It it will have to come at some point from a party in power, and every party in power has to pay back for the last time they weren't in power. That just leads, you know, to a kind of spiral that I don't think we're close to coming out of. Because as you just stated, it is a cyclical nature of politics that that, that prohibits what you just uh, articulated. Uh, does it matter that, uh, and, and it seems like um, Kavanaugh is no exception, that all of our justices, Supreme Court justices, come from either Harvard or Yale? Does that matter? 
Well, I'm, I'm a professor at the University of Virginia, uh, and I and I went to the University of Virginia, so I have to say yes to <laughs> <laughs> that one, Myron. I think, um, you know, you want some diversity in the court, and you want it in various kinds of ways. You'd like to see that there are men and women, that there are racial minorities represented on the court, and other forms of diversity in terms of background and experience. What, How did these uh, justices practice during their careers? And one aspect of diversity would be where they got their educations, because if they had all the same professors, even, you know, there's some generational difference, obviously, but they come out of the same academic cultures, you'd like to see some, some more diversity there. And President Trump had options, right? He had Amy Barrett, who went to Notre Dame, and Hardiman, who went to Georgetown, Notre Dame as an undergraduate. Um, Judge Kethledge went to the University of um, Michigan for law school. But, you know, in Judge Kavanaugh, we have um, more Yale, a lot more Yale, and that means more Yale and Harvard at the court. So for those of us who are, you know, not coming out of Ivy League institutions, I think especially it would be nice to see some diversity. But, um, but of course, Yale turns out impressive lawyers, uh, and it's not surprising that they end up in positions um, to be successful. Of course, other law schools turn out impressive lawyers, too, and so it's good to see that they're being considered for these top positions, and I hope at some point we'll see uh, we'll see nominations from you know, from a, of, of, of judges from other schools who went to other schools. I, I believe Sandra Day O'Connor, who went to Stanford, was the last uh, nominee from a non-Harvard Yale. Is that right? I haven't gone back to look at this, but um, you, may be, you may well be right. Justice Ginsburg spent some time at Columbia Law School, but, uh, but didn't finish there. Uh, but I think, I guess I suppose you're right about that. Um, in any event, yeah, there's, there's very little diversity uh, among academic institutions represented at the court. There'll be more among their clerks, but of course it, it does have some effect there as well. University Virginia School of Law professor Michael Schwartzman, thank you, sir, for joining me on the Public Rally Day. Much enjoyed your insight. Thank you very much. That was Professor Michael Schwartzman. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. But before that, this week marks the 79th anniversary since the skinny kid from Hoboken, New Jersey, recorded his first song with band leader Harry James. The song was a relative flop, but it was just the beginning for that skinny kid known as Francis Albert Sinatra, one of the most amazing careers in the entertainment industry. Here is Frank Sinatra with the Harry James Band singing all or nothing at all. Something that might have been No, I'd rather 
And now for my closing remarks. Unless something catastrophic occurs, conservatives will have their majority on the Supreme Court, with many having already placed Roe versus Wade in their legal crosshairs. As Professor Michael Schwartzman stated earlier in our broadcast, it is unlikely that Roe will be struck down with a single blow, but more akin to a death by a thousand cuts. But those thousand cuts will produce the same outcome and the same unintended consequences. The moral rhetoric and opposition notwithstanding, there is no way to avoid the unintended consequences that would result if Roe is indeed overturned. There would be a pernicious impact on low-income women, not to mention the health risks associated with the black market that would be organically created. History teaches us persuasively that public prohibition of any variety creates a black market. In this case, it would be one that is not only unregulated, but dangerous. I hope those lobbying for the end of Roe will take that into consideration. If not, they may achieve their moral outcome by creating immoral consequences hardly a path in pursuit of that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. 
That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams.